Hello everyone. We're going to be going live in a couple of minutes. Um, I've got my panel guests coming on and um, looking forward to a very exciting session today. Um, today is trying to tackle the question of why sales training doesn't work and how to fix it. It's a uh, combined effort um, between Sales of Force for Good and the Institute of, sorry, the International Association of Sales Trainers. Um, so a huge thank you to Ian Hilliard for um, inviting uh, members of the IOST. And a big thank you to David Massover, Fred Copestake, Ken Pearson, Bob Mester and Tom Williams, who are on our panel today. Um, we have a number of other people who will be popping in and out on the panel. And uh, today, really, we want to explore what works in training, uh, what causes it to work, and why uh, training doesn't work, and where things go wrong structurally in terms of commission, in terms of delivering, um, and in terms of ongoing reinforcement. So uh, what would be brilliant is if, whether you're on Facebook or LinkedIn, if you could um, share your questions, your concerns, your ideas um, on the chat, and John Robinson will keep me updated uh, to make sure that I'm staying uh, on track in terms of the content. Um, and really, this is about you guys being able to take away something of real value um, to uh, be able to improve uh, the effectiveness of sales training and also to decide whether sales training is even the right solution for where your business is and the outcomes you're trying to achieve. So I'm going to uh, bring on David Massover, first of all. Hi, gang. Hi, David. Could you give 30 seconds on your background, please? Yeah, sure. The 30-second version is I got my first sales job in 1991, and I sucked. So I kind of invented the sales process to figure out what to do. I later learned that someone else figured out the sales process, but this is the only way I knew how to deal with it. Break it down into pieces, analyze the pieces, put them together, and execute accordingly. And I've been doing that for 30 years, and so far it's worked out pretty well. Excellent. Thank you. Fred, 30 seconds. So 30 seconds on your background, please. Okay, so founder of Brindis, sales training company. Uh, last 22 years, been around the world 14 times. 35 countries, worked with over 10,000 salespeople. And uh, more recently, wrote my book uh, because I spotted what the challenges they face are. And I believe that there are ways in which we can fix that, which involves Excellent. collaborating more in sales. Excellent. Collaboration is a huge theme for today. Ken. Well, good morning, uh, <clears throat> Ken Pearson. I have been pretty much uh, most of my career as a uh, HR practitioner and have been evaluating a lot of uh, sales vendors being on the customer side of it. Uh, spent the last 10 years with SAP selling software uh, to uh, clients and really my challenge was, you know, everybody came in and really was focused on their features and functions and their uh, transactional sales process, but can never really make the connection uh, to the customer to really understand what are the business needs, what are my needs, and and why would I even buy from you? 
Wonderful. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Bob Mester, you're on mute. Yep. Yep. Hi, I'm Bob Mester. I'm, uh, I've been, uh, I'm actually an, an innovator entrepreneur. I've done seven startups. I've worked in over 3,500 different innovations. And uh, I actually wrote, recently wrote a book uh, called uh, Demand Side Sales, uh, focusing on the, the reality of uh, why do they not teach sales at business school? And uh, over the years, that basically have applied the, the jobs to be done theory to uh, selling. Excellent. Thank you. And if you haven't read uh, Demand Side Sales, uh, it's an absolute must. It's one of the best and freshest books uh, out there in sales. Um, and uh, Fred, give your book a quick plug. Sure. Never too far away from me. It's on the floor, though. Selling through partnering skills. Uh, Excellent. There you go. Um, also a must read. If you don't sell collaboratively in this day and age, I think you're toast. Um, Tom Williams. Good morning, everybody. My name's Tom Williams. And uh, I guess I got started in sales when I was about uh, 11 years old, cutting lawns and uh, shoveling snow in the Midwest and uh, lemonade stands and uh, learned the trials and tribulations of, uh, of how to, uh, how to get a buyer to actually buy. And, uh, and uh, my, my cute story about it is real quickly is uh, there'd be six or eight inches of snow on the ground. It'd be 20 degrees and I'd knock on the door and a gentleman would answer the door. And I'd, I'd tell him that there's eight inches of snow on the ground and it's 20 degrees. And for $10, I could shovel his, his uh, driveway and his walkway. But he could stay in his warm house. And uh, I closed about 95% of the business. <laughs> Excellent. So I've been selling ever since. And uh, Tom has also been on the buy side as the CEO of a large healthcare business. Um, so uh, we've got a couple of uh, L&D professionals as well coming onto the panel later. Um, so I'll introduce them in due course. Um, and then there is the one and only Zach Selt. Um, Zach? Hi, like Tom, I started selling when I was 11 years old. I worked in a flea market selling uh, factory second welcome mats that had like, <laughs> you know, the wrong spelling. So imagine trying to sell somebody a welcome mat where welcome is misspelled, right? But, um, and I've been selling ever since. My focus is on international channel sales and I, uh, I've been doing that. I've been I've sold in about 135 countries around the world. I've worked for uh, seven startups and a Fortune 1000 company and a couple of mid-sized companies. And right now, what I do is I I coach and train people to uh, do better in international sales with a pure focus on international channel sales for you know small and mid-sized uh, companies. And I also wrote a book recently focused on global sales and um, and how you can learn to sell better, you know, through channels globally. Excellent. And Ian Moyes. Hi, Marcus. Um, yeah, thank you. So being a sales leader for many years, coming from sales, sales management, etc. Currently chief revenue officer, practitioner, and as you know, I get involved in a lot of uh, professional bodies for selling and discussions such as this based on uh, evoking professional selling and seeing the bad and the indifferent going on around me. <laughs> Excellent. So on that happy note, Simon Bowen. 
Oh, only half on the screen. Let me fix that. <laughs> uh, well, I'm coming from Australia on the west coast of Australia in Perth, so uh, it's night time here. Thanks for having me, Marcus. Uh, I happen to believe that sales should be the most noble thing we do in business. And I think business is the most powerful force for good on the planet. So selling may be the most important thing any of us do. We, uh, we focus specifically on the complex sale uh, to both individuals and corporate. Uh, we've created a, a selling system that uses really powerful visual models as a mode of communication that completely redefines the level of engagement in the conversation. And, and our focus really is on having our clients show up in a sales process that has no pressure, is incredibly transparent and, uh, you know, does make selling a, you know, the first level of service. So we want people to be able to sell like a sage, which means they, 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 they come from this place of profound genius rather than ego. They have this powerful calm. They sell through presence rather than pressure. And they're able to package the most complex things into the simplest possible communication. Uh, which which really, uh, you know, allows the client to get incredible clarity. So the focus is on how people think and influence uh, through these visual models that we build. They're in use in about 19 different countries, nine different languages, selling everything from heavy industry manufacturers building warships to a sole practitioner financial planner, tech companies, uh, medical industry and everything else in between. Excellent. And I can definitely vouch for Simon's models uh, they're phenomenally simple, uh, but they are incredibly sophisticated. The thought that has to go into creating a really simple model um, is one of the most challenging, but the most effective things I've ever done in my 35 years in sales. Um, and finally, Ian, Ian Hilliard. Hello, everyone. Um, my name's Ian Hilliard. I've been studying and sharing sales philosophy for about 25 years and um, the simplicity and the beauty of sales. I uh, put the uh, IAST together as a way of bringing together some of the uh, uh, greatest minds in sales training um, in a way of um, promoting excellence and sharing Excellent. it with others. Yeah. Well, thank you all for being here. Um, today, let's start with uh, the agenda. Um, so the agenda is when sales training works. So uh, would all of the people who are involved um, on both LinkedIn and Facebook um, please give um, an example of when sales training has worked positively for you um, and the reasons or reasons you believe that it did. Um, so give you one minute uh, to fill that in uh, on the message. So, so, 
So, John Robinson, if you can feed us those um, on the Google um, docs so that I can respond to them. Okay, whilst those are going up, um, what are the factors that contribute to a successful engagement and implementation of training? Uh, Ian Moyes, can we start with you? I had a feeling when I was, I was looking for the mute button in time that I thought you're coming my way. So <laughs> I think a fundamental one is understanding the outcome you want to get. Uh, too often, I, I've, I've walked into this before where someone's about to send all their people on this training course and I've asked the question, okay, what are they going to get from this course? Oh, they're going to get this menu of three or four, you know, it's high level stuff. Okay, but they're going to come back saying, this is how we do it. This is how we do it. Do we know what, what we're actually getting? Are we going to, are they going to be in alignment with what our expectation is? Or are they going to come back and start saying things? No, 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 don't do that. No, don't approach it that way. Do we know what the content of this is? And have we worked, have we put the, the preemptive effort in with the coach, the trainer, the organization, whatever it be, to make sure we're aligned on the ethos of our business, the objectives we've got, the outcomes we want, the skills of the people we've got. No, 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 we just read it off a menu card and we just we got <laughs> on training and off we go. And that I watch happen. And I've stopped orders being placed before when I've joined places and I've seen that happening in previous companies. I said, whoa, 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 hang on a second. I don't know what I'm getting. So I'm ticking a box that I've invested in the staff and given them some training and they want negotiate whatever they want, tick, 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 it feels good. What's the outcome gonna be? And how the how do we measure this so, and how do I know what I'm getting? So that, that's a big one for me. It's pretty fundamental and simple, I think. So begin with the outcome. What what are we trying to achieve? So um there's an awful lot of nodding from uh, the pa uh, the panel, which Fred described as the cast of Huckleberry Finn. Um so um the the reality is that so much training is simply a tick in the box exercise um, and it's virtue signaling. Um, and instead, what we should be doing is really focusing on what are the results that we want uh, to achieve in the business and how are we going to get there? Um, so David, can I bring you in on this? Um, so in terms of uh, creating and designing great training, uh, working backwards from the outcome, what advice would you give to people who are commissioning training uh, in order to be prepared? Well, I think to uh, to build on to Ian's point, uh, you know, one hundred percent spot on. But but one of the things that I've seen in so many sales training endeavors is management isn't involved at all, oh. and you know, so understanding what outcome we want is is kind of a management function as opposed to let's check the box, send everybody to a training and, you know, go on with our lives. They'll come back and hopefully they'll implement some of it. So I, I think when, when you start talking about designing training, uh, just the phrase implies that there's going to be some thought put into what should this training be <laughs> and where are, where are my people at, which implies a level of engagement between management and reps that doesn't always exist. So, uh, you know, not, not to get too broad right from the beginning, but I think if you're going to ask a question like, what does it take to make sales training work? I think a whole lot of it isn't really about the training itself. It's about the ecosystem. It's about the environment. It's about the culture. It's about the, the environment in which this training is happening. And, uh, 
I'm sure that a lot of people can chime in along that theme, but by and large, I think that's something that's lacking in a whole lot of organizations that I've seen. Excellent. Simon, let's bring you in on this. And um, you're, you're on mute. Yeah. Uh, so then if I can build on Ian and David, <laughs> no question, no question. What's the outcome? Zero question about that, right? Right right in alignment with David on what's the environment or the ecosystem that then you're going to ask them for, to, for them to perform in. But one of the things that we see a lot in training is fundamental fundamental change occurs when people know what the behaviours are that they need to display in order to get to the outcome. And behaviours are largely misunderstood. A behaviour is always observable. You can see it, which means you can coach it. And if you if you and and there's this principle that comes from um, Vital Smarts in the US, a group in the US around vital behaviors. You know, so if you say, "Hey, how do you make connection with somebody? What's the body language?" People go, "Oh, eye contact, open body posture, and everything else." The vital behavior is smile twice as often as the average person does in conversation. That one thing, smiling twice as often, lines everything else up. You, you can't have a conversation with somebody smiling and then have the conversation like this looking away so let me talk to you about that it just doesn't work <laughs> the smile forces the eyes around and opens the mouth but you can coach smiling so for me one of the things that makes training successful is training behaviors that coaches that you prepare can then coach to in the workplace just by observing it we're not seeing you do this no value judgment on that we're just not seeing you do it and a behavior is always observable. So definitely outcome. What's the environment they're operating in? And that, then let's reduce this to the most critical behavior. <laughs> if they get them right, most of the rest of the stuff will take care of itself. And it's, it's uh, you know, behaviors are a powerhouse weapon of great training. And yet most people don't understand what a behavior is. So I'd like to bring Bob in at this stage. Um, because you're obviously a huge champion of the customer. Yeah. Um, and in my experience, training is often um, built around uh, the vendor and the salesperson, um, and the customer is a forgotten, inconvenient afterthought. Uh, um, so or, let's bring you in on this. Or, or some abstraction of a persona of somebody who doesn't really exist, right? And so <laughs> part of this is, is to me, like uh, one outcome for sure – one, the one thing I would add about outcome was this aspect of unpacking it to the progress that you want to make. Because at some point in time, we'll say, well, we want to do sales training to grow sales. Like that's just not, like you have to unpack to what's the real behavior, to, to, to Simon's point, what are the real behaviors you want to see and change, right? And the context has a portion of that. But I think what, one of the biggest things that's missing is the fact is, is we end up designing a process of how we sell, but we don't actually match it to how people buy. And because we don't actually study why, where, when, and who, we just figure out who they are and we just go after them. But the reality is they have a buying process as much as we have a selling process, but the, their buying process is about them making progress in their life and understanding what's the causal mechanisms behind it in their life that says today's the day. And it takes a lot of the reading out of it where we have to teach so much psychology usually because we're trying to have them read everything. But if you can actually understand where they are on their buying journey and what are the underlying causal mechanisms, sales training actually gets to be easier. 
And so it's this notion of that we we almost make it so abstract that it's you know it's somebody who's this old or this demographic or this age, but we don't actually understand the underlying causal mechanism. So when we can do that, I know sales training can be way more effective because we understand how to morph the sales process to actually fit to the buying process. Excellent. So uh, Tom, can we bring you in? You're on mute. Uh, um, I'd make a couple of comments to uh, kind of build off of what, what the rest of the group has already said. Um, no question that outcomes is the, is, the, uh, is the ultimate goal to find out. Uh, the two questions that I always ask people is, uh, why change and why change now? Uh, and that really gives you a depth of, uh, of understanding of why do they want to make a change and why do they want to do something different today? And, and is this an, an urgent problem, is an irritating problem, you know, uh, and really understand, so I, I think Bob said it nicely, you, you really got to unpack where they're at and, and dig deep to understand what, what's going on. And then it becomes an ecosystem. And uh, I think David kind of addressed that, you know, earlier, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not one thing that you can do. It's, are you training the right, for the right reasons? Do you have the right culture that you actually have managers that are in the, in the, in the training that want to be there? Are you training the managers in advance so that they become kind of mini facilitators and they buy in with their teams? They're not doing cameo appearances. You don't have five managers all sitting at the same table, you know, talking to each other during the training or on their cell phones, but they're actively engaged. And then the thing that the other piece that we haven't talked about much, you know, is really is that you've got to have reinforcement and you've really got to go and build retention and repetition. If you want to get people to really affect the change, you've got to have repetition of the training and you've got to have retention. And that, that means you've got to space out the training over a period of time, uh, you know, in terms of reinforcement, you've got to have the managers deeply involved. Uh, so it's a holistic approach. And I think the last point I would make, make is we got to stop talking about, about training and start talking about learning. Because uh, training is a event, learning is a process, right? And so I think once we get once we start to get that mindset change with the sales leadership, we'll really start to affect you know change with the salespeople. And the last point I would make is that you know we sell change as trainers. Our salespeople sell change, and yet they're the first ones that don't want to change. They don't want to. They don't want to. They don't want to use a checklist. They don't want to use a form. They don't want to follow a, 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 a buying process and they don't want to enter any data into the CRM, right? It's all about what, what everybody else needs to change. But hey, guys, we're good. We, we got this down. We don't need to change. And so that's another part of that culture and mindset. That's my, that's my initial two cents. Excellent. So, Ken, can I bring you in on this? And I'm really interested in the structural preparation that's required. Um, because very often training is used as a stick to beat the train, uh, the salespeople. Um, the salespeople are blamed uh, for their non-performance when, frankly, there are issues in hiring, onboarding, and management, uh, culture, compensation. Um, so can we address some of those issues right from the off uh, before we start um, kicking the sales trainers about? Yeah, <clears throat> and, and thanks for that question. I I do think it's a, a, a holistic view 
of this, not just a, a training program. And I do agree with Tom that it really is about learning as a process. Um, but you really have to help individuals as you're hiring them understand where they're, do they, do they first know themselves? Or do they know how to really understand what is their strengths? What do they, <clears throat> what do they bring to the table? And, and what's their agility? Um, I don't think we measure agility in the sales organization uh, as much as we should. And I think being able to understand what, you know, how you show up on a great day and how, you know, what pushes your buttons and how you're adaptable to other other uh, personality styles is, is critical in, in making those connections. Um, I also think that, uh, you know, it, it's how can I also navigate within the environment? I'm not just going to show up and interact with one buyer, I'm going to show up and interact nowadays with multiple stakeholders that are going to have all some sort of say in all of this. And are we actually teaching people how to be adaptable? Are the sales leaders listening in on the conversations and coaching for that um, adaptability and saying, hey, I don't know that you really made the connection here uh, with your client. And again, I think I heard somebody say no judgment, but can we actually lean in as sales leaders and say, hey, I think you could make a better connection if you really understood this person's motivations and their values and why, you know, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to make a hero out of this person because they're the influencer? Are we really trying to move a blocker from an ally in this, in this process? And how do we do those type of things versus sticking to prospect to close or features and functions in our, in our processes? I don't think we overlay that that human connection that we have to make in order to accelerate that process. So, Zach, can we uh, bring you in at this point? Because um, obviously channel and same with Fred. Um, ah, there we go. Uh, Global Sales by Zach Zelch, a fine book. Uh, and even um, uh, So um, what, what I'd like to ask is this. Um, you obviously have had to deal with 135 plus different nationalities and you're you're selling through third parties over whom you have no direct power or control um so i fundamentally believe you have the hardest job of all of us um because the only currency you really have are influence and trust um and so i'm curious how you manage to get um these hairy assed salespeople uh, from all these different cultures uh, to be able to buy into the whole idea that they need to change their behavior um, in order to deliver the outcome that they want. So I'm going to tell them, I'm going to try and make this a really quick story that was really influential on me and sales training. When I was about 25 and I thought I knew everything, I was working with a distributor that had about 20 salespeople and I went in one day and I saw one of the guys had the best note-taking system I'd ever seen. And I asked him about it and he said, oh, yeah, it's something I picked up. And I asked somebody else on the team and he said, oh, yeah, our idiot boss sent us to a course. And this is the only guy who actually uses the, the tool that our boss taught us, right? And I understood that the boss had sent them to a bunch of different trainings. And this was the only guy who used it. That year, this was probably 90, 92, 93, that, guy, that year that guy made a million dollars in commission, the distributor sales rep. 
right, which was about seven times more than the next highest guy. Anyway, so back to your question, what I figured out was my job is to give salespeople and my distributors the tools that are going to make them more money, right? And if they look at me as this guy who helps them get more tools, not just to sell my product, but to sell all sorts of products, right? So what I'm doing is when I do sales training, and what I wanted to say earlier just quickly was, I'm typically dealing with smaller groups maybe than a lot of you guys are. I like to almost interview everybody, audit the teams, get a feel for what they know, what they don't know, what they need, and really make sure that we are addressing what the different groups or teams need to learn, right? So I'm teaching the thing that I need them to know about my product, but I'm also, say, curating information and teaching them other skills that they can then use because what I also find is distributors don't train their salespeople that well. So if I'm feeding them sales skills, they look to me, you know, what I want out of this and what, you know, Marcus and Dave know from reading my book is I'm all about mindshare of the distributor sales rep, right? If I'm the guy who taught them to take better notes, I'm the guy who taught them about how to divide up a sales process. I'm the guy who taught them a little bit more about you know, how to set up their deck, they are going to, they're going to sell my product more, right? And they're going to look to me, they're going to be happy and eager every time I come to them for training. And then as a follow-up, I think you have to, you have to interview these people beforehand and know what they need. You have to train them and then you have to follow up with coaching. So those are say the three parts of what I'm doing. Interesting. Okay. Um, so let's then move on to uh, the next question, which is, what are the common mistakes when commissioning training? Simon. You're on mute. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I mean, there's a couple of ways you could read the question, but what are the common mistakes made by people, you know, by companies, people who are commissioning the training? or what are some of the common mistakes that people make in identifying that people can do the training, you know, for them or deliver some kind of training or learning experience for their salespeople. I, you know, we, it, it's just a really obvious thing and yet it's simultaneously disturbing. I've, I've been in so many conversations with organisations that are seeking some kind of, um, training you know learning experience for salespeople and i think it's you know it's a really interesting point about you know shift to learning versus training the the, the common mistake is commissioning training as opposed to actively seeking to create a learning experience when you commission training you're kind of ticking a box to say at least we've delivered some sales training you know and but when you actively create a learning experience about how people can sell more effectively and utilising so many of the really insightful thoughts that people have already shared today, maybe you don't do training at all. Maybe you do a whole lot of stuff in practice and in flow and through challenge and through active feedback and really powerful leadership and, you know, focus on the environment and what are the things that are stopping people from performing. You know, really common mistake. We're going to send people to sales training, 
but we're not going to tackle the barriers and impediments in the organization structurally that are going to stop them from using it. What a frustration. You know, we're going to teach you how to sell and we're going to keep all the barriers in place that don't let you sell. So, well, you know, it's calling it sales training that might be the problem. I, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I, I, what I've, I've spent the last 18 years as ostensibly a sales trainer, um, but the actual classroom work was the least important part and yeah. technique was the least important part of the least important part. Um, but that seems to be where most training is focused. Um, and I, I know there are plenty um, of people on the call, uh, both as um, attendees and on the panel, um, who do not deliver training in that way. Um, but what has frustrated me for so long is that um, so little thought really goes in uh, to the actual implications of um, training the sales force um, mm. because they're so fixated on retention and the smile sheet at the end and ticking the box. Um, and what they're not focused on is developing business acumen, uh, on understanding the moving parts. Um, if I sell someone a costly piece of software, um, it has massive ramifications across the entire organization. Um, but as the salesperson, I'm incentivized to generate a transaction and attract another logo. Um, and from the customer's perspective, that does the opposite of creating buyer safety, and yeah. which I know that you're a huge proponent of, seeing as I stole the concept from you. So thank you for that. <laughs> You've had your credit once. That's the last time. Um, but um, genuinely, uh, I, I was incensed in December last year when I read two reports, one from Gartner, one from LinkedIn, that said 33% of buyers want a 100% seller-free buying experience, and 67% of buyers in the other study uh, said sales and salespeople are morally bankrupt. Now, selling is a noble profession when executed well, with the customer at the heart and uh, the seller putting the customer's success above their commission check. Um, so Ian Hilliard, let me bring you in on this because obviously you represent uh, and you're the voice of uh, many sales trainers. Um, what does the training industry need to do in order to challenge the commissioners of sales training um, so that they focus on the correct end of the problem? I think there's, um, <clears throat> there's been a lot of talk about coaching versus uh, training and uh, a lot about accountability, um, which is uh, absolutely crucial. Um, I, talking to um, uh, a lot of members, um, they, the common denominator you often find is uh, those with the greatest levels of accountability success and results uh, combine a training with a coaching program that lasts longer than just simply a hit and run one day um, uh, entertaining um, sort of um, few hours out of the uh, uh, coal face. Um, I think there's a lot of technology coming on board, uh, which I'd like to um, uh, briefly mention later on, um, which uh, really helps that and stops uh, trainers uh, worrying about the, uh, their bottom line. 
of um, spending too much time over months and months rather than a quick in and out scenario. So on that note, then, um, I'm going to bring Bob back in as um, I see you as the champion of the customer. Um, how crucial is it that we get buyers into sales training so that salespeople actually understand their um, beliefs, their objectives, the mechanics of how they buy, the behavior of how they buy. Um, notice the acronym BOM there. Um, and um, uh, how, how vital is it that salespeople actually see buyers as um, their partner instead of their adversary? Yeah. So one of the things I do is is I do uh, uh, I start a lot of the training in what we call a basically a, a jobs to be done interview or a post mortem, and we actually get the, the 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 buyer on the line and we actually try to understand it from all of their perspective in terms of you know emotionally, socially, and functionally all the things that were going on and it time after time after time what happens is like the salesperson knows like a quarter of the story. And they don't understand, like I, I did it one the other day, and it was like, they kept ghosting me. Like all of a sudden, like, you know, they won't answer my question. They won't see what's happening. And then like four months later, all of a sudden, then they came out of nowhere and just bought. I'm like, it's not random. Let's go talk to them. So we go talk to them. And in the middle of the demo that, that when they were looking for, for different options, they realized they had a bigger problem that they had to go solve. So they actually had to put this on the side, but they had no answers to give anybody. So they went and fixed that problem. And as soon as it was fixed, they came back and just bought. But nobody actually, th they, they keep thinking that people are avoiding them because they just don't want to buy. And it's like, you have to hear the whole story. And so part of this is to take the time to not only understand how people bought, but what were the underlying causal mechanisms to do so? And then as you are selling, now you have their language to hear the words they use and not have to teach them the words that or, or the meaning behind all the jargon you have. And so part of this is to me is the, the one of the key foundations is being so intimate with what what is actually motivating and driving the customer? And what are the set of things? It's not one, nobody buys for one reason. They buy for a set of reasons. And so can we understand what they are and can we actually figure that out? Uh, absolutely. And Dennis Champagne has made the very vital point, which win reviews are crucial. crucial. And so are loss reviews. Um, yeah. If you, and um, Bob mentioned pre-morteming. Um, yeah. Anyone who does not do a pre-mortem on an important sale is essentially just playing Russian roulette. Um, you want to have the hardest conversations you have before you go in front of the customer. Um, Fred, let me bring you in on this as well um, around uh, this whole process of selling with partnering skills. Um, what, what do we mean by that uh, in the context of the broader sales training uh, process? Uh, in fact, let's stop calling it training. I'm agreed. Okay. Uh, in terms of the sales learning environment, um, why is partnering? Uh, why are partnering sales skills so crucial? Well, for me, it's what partnering skills are doing is they're giving salespeople the, the ethos, the mindset to do all the stuff that the guys are saying. You know, and it's hard work, and you've got to understand how to do this. So it's not really about the training, the coaching. Um, it's not even actually about the channel management piece, because for me, partnering skills are applicable to every single salesperson. Don't care who you are. Absolutely. Whether you're even in a, a fairly simplistic transactional sale, if your mind is to be partnering with the customer, even though you might not be kind of building this long-term alliance, 
you're going to do a better, more honourable, more noble sales job. Now, as, you, as your deal sizes, the values, the complexity increases, more people get involved. Yeah, we've got to partner with our own company, with the customer. And so we can bring in these elements of PQ, you know, the stuff that Steve Dent researched back in the late 80s, early 90s, and kind of bake those into our sales approach. So whichever sales approach we have, whether we're using models, whether we're using the, the stuff that the other guys are training, PQ can fit in with all of that and help the salesperson get their head around how to do this professionally in the modern environment, which is about collaborating better. That's why I get so excited about it, because it's just applicable right across the board. That's why I want more people to, to think about it, really. It doesn't have to be just in channel. Anybody, anybody in sales, get your head around it, because you can only benefit from understanding it better. Excellent. So, uh, Ken, let me bring you in on this as well. Um, in terms of um, the ex actual execution and delivery of learning programs, where do uh, organizations and trainers go wrong? You know, <clears throat> uh, a couple things. One is I, I think a lot of times we think a sheet dip approach is the way to um, uh, to take care of things. So everybody just gets dumped in the same vat of, of, uh, of de or deflating or whatever it is. Um, and, and we, we want to think that, um, that we've got the latest and greatest and we don't go in and, and consult with the business and say, okay, what are your business objectives? And, and what are the implications of those objectives and how do I actually modify my learning program to actually take care of those KPIs that you want to impact? And I just don't think enough of that happens. And I think trainers go wrong with it. I think organizations go wrong with it because they're not really sitting down and saying, hey, uh, you've got this business objective. There is some sort of implication. There's some sort of lever that you want to pull. And how does this training actually pull that lever? And I'm going to retract that. How does this learning and how have I structured a learning program to uh, actually pull this lever? And part of the model is, there is no services or even part of the building that comes with, hey, I'm going to follow up with you in one quarter and see if we move the levers. And I'm going to follow up. And if, if not, why not? Let's make some modifications. If, the, if so, then great. Then please be a reference for my training organization because we, you know, we're making an impact. I'm going to follow up with you in six months. I'm going to follow you up in three quarters of a year and I'm going to follow up with you in a year. I don't see a lot of learning programs that, that, that offer that, that level of, of commitment to the customer. So that's my biggest thing where I think people go wrong. Okay. Um, I've just had a comment through um, via LinkedIn, and I think it's entirely fair. It's also my fault, so I want to apologize up front. Um, we seem to be a rather uh, um, homogenized bunch of white, middle-aged, um, largely receding hairline men. Um, and I think there is a, an issue here, um, which is that there isn't enough diversity um, and there are not certainly not enough women um, in the whole um, uh, implementation of learning and management uh, in sales. Now, that varies from industry to industry. Um, but uh, let's think, um, Tom, let's bring you in um, as the butchest of us all. Um, uh, 
in terms of your views on this? Um, I think I'd go back to a couple of things, uh, you know, that we've been covering I kind of tangentially, and that is most sales leaders don't know how to buy sales training. Most sales leaders, it's the very first time that they bought sales training or they are, they've got what I call historical allegiance to a program that they took 10 or 15 years ago and believe that that, that program will be the ideal for, uh, for their sales force because it worked for them before, right? Uh, and so I think you've got to go back to understanding that, that first off, we've got to help buyers buy. And, you know, we've got to co-create, we got to ask a lot of in-depth questions as Bob calls it, unpack really what, what they really want to want to do, how to get to those outcomes. Uh, and when we do that, we help to co-create solutions. We help to build collaboration. We build consensus as it goes along uh, is so that they make the right decision. And then along the way, one of the tools that we've used for years is an outcome enablement plan. Many people call it a mutual action plan, but really it's a tool that's a, think of it as a list of activities and milestones that a buyer has to go through in order to make an informed, intelligent decision. And, and if you go and, and outline those steps in that process, what you're really doing is being a, a counselor, an advisor, a concierge, and, and a trusted advisor, you're not becoming a, being a sales representative. And what, and what that's doing is, is it, it builds trust, it builds credibility, it builds, it builds an, a, an environment where we're working together to get a common, a common goal, a common outcome. And I tell people up front, I'm going to give you a tool that we're going to, we're going to modify together to get the outcome that you want regardless of whether you buy from me or not. This is a tool that you can use with any of my competitors. I've never once had somebody turn me down from, uh, from using it, and our close rate is over 90% by using it. This is Very not, I, and I think I'll make one last point, you know, if I could, and I won't monopolize this. The win rate of forecasted deals hasn't gone, gone more than about 47% in the last 10 years. That's abysmal. And, you know, and so sales training as it, as it is constructed today doesn't work. I think we can all agree on that because if it did work, we'd be getting a lot better results. And the reason it doesn't work is because we're not buyer centered. We're all about what we're going to do as salespeople. And we don't think about how buyers buy. I'll, and with that, I'll, I'll, I'll shut up and let the rest. I absolutely of agree. And I know Bob's itching to jump in at this point. Um, I think one of the things that is really important is uh, we have to start with buyer insights and the buyer's journey. And um, where so many organizations go wrong, whether they're training or whether they're delivering their um, playbook, um, they don't start with the customer. So, Bob, let me bring you in on this. Like I can, I can thank you, Tom, for just opening opening the floodgates, right? Yeah, exactly. Like the so the first thing is we have to realize is that planning is guessing, and half the time we have imagined tasks of what we have to do, but there's discovered tasks along the way that for some reason seasoned salespeople know about, but uh, but unseasoned salespeople just want to stick to the process and the steps, right? And 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 to be honest, the way in in my way in my view of kind of the, the sales process is it was actually high. It was hijacked back in 1985 when marketing and finance took it over, right? 
And they literally basically started to basically say, like, think about it for a second, that correlation is not causation, right? Marketing just correlates to see the market size. But who's going to buy is not just by who's in the market. It's who, when, where, and why. And so it's this notion of understanding the customer so much in such detail. It's, it's you know, I think, Tom, you said it. It's the unpacking part of this thing, right? I just was on a call with somebody who said, oh, I want it to be convenient. Well, it turns out that convenient has 14 different meanings to it. <laughs> and, and for us to deliver on convenient, I got to make it easy to use. I got to make it easy to buy. I got to make it easy to install. I got to make, like easy turns out to be all these different things. And if we don't unpack it, we don't understand it. But the, the other part to me is that it's, it's, it's like sales. The reason why I think the sales process is so broken is that at some point, senior management doesn't take it as seriously as it needs to be. Because I think they've somehow salespeople have been relegated to order takers. And at the end of the day, they're not. It's, it's like, to me, one of, the, one of my biggest pet peeves is like when we're at the end of the quarter and, so, and, 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 and basically somebody comes down and says, oh, we can offer a discount if we close by the end of the quarter. Right. And the reality is, is like at some point in time, you're destroying the value of the company by trying to meet a number that that finance guessed at 24 months ago about what it should be. And the reality is, is like at some point we're offering a discount, which is changing people's behavior. And we start to realize like the, the, the enemy is is inside the company. It's not outside the company. And we have to actually realize how the roles play and what. Being a salesperson, you have to know everything about the product. You have to know the customer. You have to know how things work inside. You have to know how things work outside. It is a very hard job to do. And, and at the end of the day, to me, the marketers are, are salespeople who can't close because they just want to add another feature to try to close it. And finance just basically is trying to make sure they meet the numbers they predicted. And so to me, sales is like that noble profession that we really need to actually put at the center of the organization because when they're not, everything else is going to fall apart. Sorry, that was my rant. <laughs> well, it, it was a fantastic rant. And um, I, I'd like to just add something to this, um, which I think um, harks back about 40 years. Um, and it was the big lie that was perpetrated by the evil um, uh, Milton Friedman, who came up with the big lie, which is that every business should be set up uh, to serve shareholder value. That created the environment for corporate raiders. It put finance in the driving seat and the customer became a forgotten inconvenience at the end of a long, painful chain of abuse. And to add to um, your point there, um, all these companies purporting to be customer centric until the end of the quarter when yeah. they turn into total assholes yeah. and they go out um, and they peddle discounts and they put people under pressure um, and it's an obscenity. And I think we, we really have to tackle that head on. <clears throat> yes. And um, it, it's, it's really central to that whole concept of um, uh, buyer safety, uh, which I'm going to keep so, driving home that message. So, if you so that's, do not that's, have... That's why Sorry, I... One of the things, that's why I actually fo focus on not what Friedman said, but what Peter Drucker said, is that the, the purpose of a, of, of a company is to actually serve its customers and to actually bring value to them in, in excess of what they're willing to pay. And so my thing is, is if, if somebody pays me a dollar, I should actually help them make more than a dollar. And so part of this is that we should always be focusing on that part of it, because without that, there is no shareholder value. And so they've 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 ruined the correlation side of this 
or causation part of this because at the end of the day, a company doesn't exist if it doesn't serve. Period. Well, the, and this this is something that baffles me uh, when you get hard nosed, allegedly capitalist uh, investors um, who think that somehow uh, having high staff turnover in their sales with high mental um, uh, uh, stress levels, high turnover in management, managers who are not trained and given a runway to learn the job of management, which is the opposite of uh, being a producer. You have to get your kicks and uh, your soul has to be fed by seeing other people succeed. Yeah. Um, and uh, then you have uh, disengaged employees, which leads to disengaged customers, which leads to churn of the customers. And if you have a 15% um, customer churn rate, in three years, that means you've lost 49% of your customers. And yep. um, so, Ian, let me bring you back in on this, Ian Moyes. Um, let's talk about training around retention and learning around retention. Well, I, I, I listening to all this, I think there's one bit that a couple of things I'll throw in. So from a sales leadership perspective, I've heard statements like this before. So, and Marcus, we've had this conversation before where... I've said, look, I want to I invest in my team and strengthen them and use some external expertise. To And I've had, why do you need to do that? Why are we paying for that when that's what we pay you for? Therefore, you must yeah. know everything. You must know everything because you've done it before. We've employed you for that. And I, I tell my team now, I've got a young team, I'm still learning. Right? And I, I think too often leadership is the problem that they either think they know it all or they're, they're expected to, to know it all. And I, I've sat in on the training with my teams and not as a manager voicing up, look how much I know, but to actually to partake, to know what they're getting, to learn more about my team, to contribute and be part of the learning exercise on the basis of I may learn a little bit less than less experienced people in the room, but I'm still learning and I'm still going to take value from those sessions and be part of them. And I also know then what they what they have learned. And I don't know what everyone thinks of that, but too often I get the, let's go and put all our people on training. It's not my problem. I know it all, but let's send them on it. Or I don't know what the content is, etc. And I think in the subscription economy, talking about the customer retention and putting the customer in a safe buying place, this is more dangerous than it's ever been before because... You have you're no longer signing up a customer and getting a, all the money now and say, well, it doesn't matter what happens. We'll fix it down the line. But we've got the next five years money. You haven't. Right. How many people are signing up customers on a monthly, quarterly or, or at best an annual type contract where the lifetime value is being tested again and again? And if you haven't set the bar at the right level at the beginning, your retention is going to get really difficult to your point. Well, uh, again, what I see time and time again, it, particularly in the subscription economy, is just a relabeling. Um, nothing has really changed. I'm thinking of certain large uh, software organizations where uh, the salespeople get compensated one-fifth if a partner does the implementation. Um, that's not a partner model. It's not uh, put in place to serve the customer. Um, and uh, I think one of the really interesting trends that I'm seeing is the growth in strategic alliances and um, 
the long tail. Um, so if you look at the weakness in the strength of very large, cumbersome enterprise, um, they have the usual bell curve distribution. 4% can basically walk on water. 16% uh, can turn water into wine. Then you have the 60% middle layer of mush. 16% who can barely wipe their own bottom and 4% who can barely breathe unaided. Um, and um, the challenge, I think, for many of those organizations is they have high overhead and a large uh, bench that they have to get out into the field. And I think one of the really interesting challenges is how they're going to compete um, when customers are looking for best of breed solutions, because what they want is the best outcome. When they invest in their business, they're investing for now and the future. Um, so they don't care who provides the uh, solution. What they want is the best possible outcome. Um, so Simon, let me bring you in on this. Uh, Simon and I, uh, full disclosure, are collaborating uh, on a book around strategic alliances. Um, so I'm very curious to see um, or hear your thoughts again um, in terms of how uh, collaboration uh, with competitors uh, should be taught as part of the learning process uh, and collaboration with closely associated but potentially competitive uh, solutions in order to deliver the best possible outcome for the customer? Um, it, it challenges you to question first whether you actually even believe in the competitive environment. Um, you know, there's a premise that everyone's competing, and that's not necessarily true. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 it's interesting. I've done a lot of work with with elite sport and the military as a consultant, and you know, with uh, you know Australian sporting teams and Olympians and things like that. And the most successful coaches, interestingly enough, uh, train their teams to play off the other team play off the other team's game rather than trying to negotiate rather than trying to negate it you know uh, the, it, the, there's not that much truly competitive space where you know where we have to take all of your clients in order to win so there's two primary games in play there's the infinite game and then the finite game the finite game is a game you play to win. This is James Carsey's work. It's phenomenal work, finite and infinite games. The finite game is a game you play to win. You use the element of surprise to get a strategic advantage. Uh, there's a defined number of players, a fixed way of keeping score, etc. The infinite game is a game that you play to keep the game going and you use surprise as a mechanism to learn and grow. And, the, and you, can, you, you can't... You can't play a finite game and and win the infinite game, it's not possible. So if I'm in the thrust and parry of competitive behaviour, what I'm forcing the customer into, and you and I have lots of conversations about buyer safety, the buyer should feel safer with you than they do without you so that the safest thing for them to do is to commit to buy from you. You need to, the, the buyer needs to incrementally feel safer with you in every step of the engagement with you. Every step of the engagement makes them feel safer with you than without you. So the safest thing to do is to commit to buy from you. Now, the moment you act like a competitor with everybody else, you've just shown up like everybody else. 
the moment you say, and I can't remember who it was, said, I'm going to give you a tool, and whether you actually work with me or not, or a competitor, and it wouldn't, it didn't even need the word competitor or someone else, this tool's still going to work for you. You've just shown up as someone that's safe to be around, almost because you just don't see the competitive world as competition. You see the competitive world as collaboration and service. The only, honest, the, the only yeah. honest thing for me to do is to recognise when there's just not a good fit between me and a potential client, not because what we do doesn't work, but because it's just not a good fit, but somebody else could really knock it out of the park for them that I know who delivers sales systems. It's just that it's a different one to what we do and it's going to work better for them. The best thing I could possibly do for that client is go, you need to go and talk to so-and-so. You know, and so long as values are right, Marcus, you know, you, you, know, you, you, you kind of, I don't know that you want to be in the pond with a shark, but so long as the values are shared, I think, I think people that do the same thing in a marketplace can play really, really nicely together and collectively make the buyer safer and safer and safer. We all know the worst thing you could do is, is diminish and badmouth a, a competitor in the marketplace, but what if you actually collaborate with them? Now, obviously, we've got to be careful of, you know, monopoly laws and <laughs> trade practices and everything else. I don't mean collaboration like that. But you and I, you know, some of my some of my leads are not great prospects for me, but they would be great for you. And some of your leads are not great prospects for you, but they'd be great for me. And we should be having these conversations. It's, it's a completely counterintuitive way of thinking about this whole world of selling uh, to what we've all been taught, you know, from the 50s and 60s, foot in the door, vacuum cleaner salespeople, you know, which is where a lot of behaviour came from and it's so out of whack today, you know. It, it just really is. I'm delighted to be on the panel with all of the folks here today because I'm thrilled to hear a collection of people that are talking about customer first. You know how I feel about buyer safety find out how we serve them. Selling is a powerful force for good. You know, it is refreshing to be in a conversation about what selling should actually mean to the world. It's, it, you know, it is it is the first level of service, you know, without question. Well, so sales is a service business first and foremost, and mm. service does not mean servitude. No. And I think a lot of people get that confused. Um, service means that sometimes we have to take a bullet for the customer. Uh, other times we have to hold up the ugly mirror and say, hang on a second. How do I tell you that's the dumbest thing I have ever heard without causing you any offense? Um, and if they're overstepping the mark, we need to be able to create the conditions of parity uh, right from the off because they have a problem or they have a better future that they're trying to achieve. And we need to be leaders. We need to be a safe pair of hands. And we need to be their ally, not their accomplice, which means that we propagate their bad behaviors and we uh, pander to their uh, terrible um, uh, distemper. Um, and um, we are not their uh, adversary. They're not the enemy. Um, but I think so often uh, we're pitted against one another uh, because culturally the expectation is uh, that we're going to go in and they're going to give us a hard time. And you get reflected back what you project out. 
Um, Ken, I'm seeing you being very tight-lipped here, so there's clearly some pent-up frustration. Um, you, uh, why don't you come in at this point? Sorry, I needed to find my cursor there. Uh, actually, no pent-up frustration. I'm just really, um, really loving the uh, panel discussion here. I, you know, just, I like to tell stories. Um, and I think what was just said earlier by you, Marcus, about it's, um, it's a service business, but not servitude. Um, I, you know, the best customers that I won the most deals with were the ones that I could go in and challenge their thinking process. What is it that makes you think you need that? Um, <clears throat> and I'll give you a real quick example. Um, in the HR software space, so many customers would want, we need, we need workforce analytics. We need workforce analytics. Well, what is it that makes you think you need that? <clears throat> By the end of the discussion, what they really just needed was good reporting. And salespeople hated me for going in there and saying, we're not selling you workforce analytics right now because you're not ready for it. You're not mature enough for it. You're not, you're not going to use it. It's going to become shelfware. Those are the people that were the loyalists and came back and said, well, then help us mature give us the roadmap to mature so that we can get to that product. And that was really creating the customer's narrative or their, their, their roadmap with them that they could say, okay, let's, let's come back and visit this when the time is necessary. And we're going to come back to you, not somebody else. So I think it's critically important that we teach salespeople how to, you know, one collaborate and partner, but also to be able to say, Hey, I'm, I'm really trying to get to that trusted advisor status with you. And in order to do that, that means there, yeah, there's going to be some challenges along the way that we have to discuss. Um, and I think that's sometimes where sales training falls short too. So let, let's look at the evaluation process because we're um, coming into the sort of final furlong of the uh, conversation. Uh, in terms of evaluating whether training and learning has been a success, um, what are the mistakes people make and what should we be measuring and tracking? Um, so, uh, Zach, let's bring you in. I'm not sure this is the answer everybody wants to hear, but I'm going to say revenue. I mean, in the end of the day, in sales, if we do things right, we're going to see a bump in revenue, right? So I'm not sure that's what we were looking for, Marcus. But from my perspective, if I'm training a group of people, what I'm looking for is a bump in revenue. Maybe not the next week, because usually I'm dealing with long sales cycles. But effectively, I'm doing all of this to see a bump in revenue. So that's what I'm sort of looking for. Now, what I'd like to see is, I do a pretty tight follow-up with my funnel and I know what people are doing. So what I wanna see is a change in activity, a change in behaviors. But in the end of the day, what I'm really looking for is, if I do a sales training, the following year, I wanna see a big bump in, in, in revenue. Does that, is that what you're looking for, Marcus, or am I going to get shut off to the little, you know, to the attic is a bad, bad answer? No, I think <laughs> results are really important. I, I think if you're not generating the results, then what the hell are you doing the training for? Uh, then it's just lipstick on a pig. Um, but I, I think there's more to it. Well, there's um, more to it than revenue, but I think you're right. Results, 
But again, we're, we're looking for, for something measurable in terms of, of results and behavior and then numbers from my perspective. Well, Ben Elijah's made a very valid point again. And I think part of this speaks to the uh, modern culture of um, investor-backed um, scale-up technology companies, certainly. Uh, the emphasis on revenue growth and new logo acquisition, as opposed to building solid businesses built on strong fundamentals that actually make a damn profit. Um, I mean, heaven forbid um, that we have companies that actually make a profit and uh, can sustain the ups and downs and aren't entirely dependent on their quarterly performance and their share price uh, for the survival of their executive team or whether salespeople keep their jobs. Um, Tom, let's bring you in. Yeah, I'll play off a little bit of what, you know, what Zach said. I think, you know, one of the things that I hear a lot is we want to increase revenue or you want to increase, uh, you know, long-term profitability, you know, and those, those are all great things to do, but they're lagging indicators. And so the question becomes is what are the leading indicators that are going to get us to that, to that result? And I think those are the kinds of conversations you've got to have with sales leaders and then help them understand what it's going to take to get those results. You know, and so what you end up with then is going back to that ecosystem that we talked about before. Uh, and one of the reasons why you don't get, um, you know, long term results in organizations is, you know, I could probably list you 14 reasons. But, you know, uh, if you really you know, link it down to just a few things, it's one is there was no real, real plan to start with. Um, number two, you didn't have, you didn't do any coaching to, to start with, you know, have coaching built in. You didn't coach the managers in advance and you didn't have a reinforcement plan. And so if you don't have a reinforcement and an adoption plan, you're not going to get good, solid results. You know, and, uh, you know, when I was working with a, with a large training vendor years ago, I used to tell people, you know, if you're not going to follow this, the process I'm going to outline, just go buy the book, you know, because you're going to waste your money. And, and all the training. So just buy the book and, you know, do the best you can and, uh, you know, and see where you get. Uh, but, but again, I think this is this is the the formula for success is very simple. But you've got to start with helping the buyer to buy and understand all the ramifications to get the results and the outcomes they want. They've got to they've got to be buyer centered and they've got to work backwards. And, and unfortunately, most of them want to take the short the short uh, approach and just do training as a one-day event. If I've heard it one time, I've heard it a thousand times. Can you do the training in four hours instead of a day? Can you do instead of two days, can we do it in, in, in one day? Well, no, you can't do that and get the result and the outcome that you want. So let's talk about what, what the objectives are that you want to take out of the training and out of the learning, and then we'll talk about whether we can still give you a measurable result. So I could, you know, Marcus, I could probably talk about this for two days just on this one topic. Because yeah. it's, 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 it's uh, it might be a good idea to do another roundtable on just that topic. Because well, there's 18 days very, worth of content. It's um, very insidious. <laughs> it, it absolutely is. I mean, uh, it, it's an, an obscenity um, that um, the, <coughs> the lack of preparation, um, then, frankly, piss poor execution, um, and the emphasis on all the wrong things with the customer completely forgotten um, and the uh, measurement being, were the delegates happy? Did they have fun and the smile sheets filled out? So L&D can tick the box 
Um, and then did they remember anything two weeks later, six months later, uh, as opposed to did it move the needle to the right and did the, uh, the training sustain? Um, did customers um, uh, find that the experience of buying from your organization improved? Uh, did your referral rates go up? Um, and um, Dennis uh, has been making the point uh, quite loudly on the chat. Um, about sorting out the top of the funnel. You know, very often we're focused on the wrong end of the problem. Um, it's not closing that you've got a problem with. Um, more often than not, it's not objection handling you have a problem with. Um, the, you know, the problems start completely and in a completely different place. One of my mentors, Charlie Green, who wrote um, the uh, Trusted Advisor, Trust-Based Selling, and came up with that fabulous formula uh, for uh, trust, um, he was going in to train at an investment bank. And one of them came up with a bit of swagger um, and said, Charlie, just to know what you're dealing with here, um, I got into investment banking because I want to make money, lots of money. And I don't give a fuck about the customer. Um, and Charlie looked him in the eye and said, well, do you think your customer might pick up on that? And the guy was slightly flummoxed and said, well, probably, but I don't care. It says, well, the problem is that long-term thinking and long-term behavior delivers short-term and long-term results. What do you think short-term thinking and short-term behavior delivers? Now, so often that everyone is fixated on the short-term. And I think there is um, that part of the problem is that the way businesses are set up around quarterly reporting, um, I think in the future, the smartest businesses will not go public or and they won't get investment. They'll find a way to bootstrap, they'll collaborate, they'll do strategic alliances and they'll scale that way. And then they're not being held hostage uh, by the bad economics. Um, so who can we bring? David, let's bring you in on this. Your thoughts. Uh, I'm sorry, which part, boss? <laughs> Uh, the the bad economics driving the the wrong kind of behavior and culture. Yeah, you know it's pretty pervasive, right? You you see this a lot. Where uh, uh, you know I, I don't want to pick on the venture backed companies because they're kind of an easy target, but you, but you tend to see that a lot. I think companies that want to succeed in that environment have to bootstrap themselves to a place where they know what they're doing. Uh, if you've got a proven model. And you can execute it and you can demonstrate that, you know, just add money, but don't change too much and we can grow. I think you've got a chance. I think the companies that get into trouble are the ones that raise money too early and wind up getting a lot of pressure to meet targets that uh, have been derived without a lot of backstory. And, and you wind up getting pressure to do a lot of the kind of the, the bad behaviors that we're all we're all hearing so much about and so many salespeople and sales leaders and quite frankly, uh, company founders are, are suffering from. Interesting. Ken, your thoughts? Sorry, cursor again. Um, can't seem to keep it, keep track of it. Um, no, I, I, I guess really is just to put uh, another point on it is we're seeing a lot more um, startup organizations create these robust ecosystems that bring people into the fold to, to thrive. And they're, they're all taking the approach that we're in, we're in this together. We can win together. We can help each other. Um, almost a co-op type of mentality versus the, 
I got to raise a lot of capital and uh, then I got to be, and then I got to be answering to somebody that's uh, I'm seeing a comment down here that somebody's being penalized for having an insane PE ratio. Um, yeah, I think those days are starting to come to a, a quick end and we're seeing the trend of people going, no, let's, let's figure out how we create these robust ecosystems uh, to help us all be successful and, uh, and move the business forward. So, we're running short on time, um, so I'm going to move the conversation forward. Um, what are the common post-training uh, mistakes uh, that we see um, perpetrated? Fred? Um, everyone goes back to normal. And normal wasn't very good, which is supposedly why we wanted to do the training. But then I'd go back to the very first part of the conversation about the outcomes. Are people actually committed to the outcome? Or is it something they think they want? It's finds kind of good. It's like it's like going to the gym in January. You see people there the first week and go, you're not actually really committed to doing this, are you? You're only going because that's kind of what people do then. You're doing this training just because it's still what you do and you've got a bit of budget and that's what we think. But as soon as the sort of, yeah, okay, I'm not going to go anymore. And that's the kind of thing that's happening in training is that we've done this thing that nobody's really bothered about anyway. Management bothered. People... We were like hostages on it, weren't really bothered anyway. And so trainer's gone, thank goodness. Let's just get back to where we were. A bit <laughs> similar, perhaps, but, um, you know, it happens. And um, there is a new app being developed called Askum, A-S-K-U-M dot co dot UK. And um, it is a rating tool uh, that salespeople will send to the customer before they turn up and then they get assessed on their performance in front of the customer. Um, and uh, that rating will follow them around throughout their career. Now, I'm really excited by this um, because what it will do is it will sh separate uh, the sheep from the goats uh, when it comes to sales because people who've got a high ASKM score will have it plastered all over LinkedIn and all over their CV, and people who don't, um, it's a fair question to uh, ask them, why haven't you got your Ask Them score up? Um, Before we do that, though, Marcus, why don't we get involved in asking the customers, are the salespeople doing something different? Are you liking what you're getting from us? You, you know I bang on about QBRs are a waste of time. Yep. Bin the B, stop measuring SLAs, get in front of them, QVR, quarterly value review. Are we delivering value for you? Are the salespeople, the people that you're making contact with, doing stuff that's making a difference? And we can phrase all the questions, senior management can get in there, phrase all the questions, pick up on all the stuff that we've said. You know, are you feeling safe? Are we any value? Are we collaborating with you? What can we do better here? And that's kind of two birds with one stone, because then if we're not, Excellent. we'll do about it. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Simon, let's bring you in on this. What are the post-training mistakes? Uh, yeah, at the risk of being controversial. Um, I find myself saying to sales leaders and executives and CEOs of companies when they're talking about engaging me to do some work, this very simple line that says, you know, at some point, you know, I'm going to come back and tell you that you're the problem, don't you? <laughs> and, and one of the most powerful benefits of any kind of formal training is that it is a magnificent intelligence gathering mechanism for the organisation to discover how it is um, 
tying the hands of its salespeople behind their backs. And there is this assumption that the only thing that determines sales success is the skill level and quality of the salespeople, and that there's so much inconsistency in the structure and system of the organisation in allowing the salespeople to succeed. You know, how rich and deep is the data and is it vertically available to everybody so that they can act rapidly and quickly? And so one of the most common post-training issues that I keep coming up against is I can go back to the organisation and say, there's a whole lot of behavioural change that we've talked about with your salespeople, but here are three really big issues that have come up in your organisation that if you were to address them directly, publicly and openly, so the sales teams know that, you'd get a dramatic uplift from that, both reputationally as an organisation with your own people, but also freeing them up to perform. And the response usually is, you know, that that's not the issue. And, and yet training delivers so much insight that in, into thing, simple things often, often quite simple things that, that an organisation can do that are back to the ecosystem and the environment piece again. You know, like um, sales data and sales information is a classic example. Um, you know, pricing schedules and things like just sometimes just basic stuff and sometimes more complex stuff. But what's, what's one of the big mistakes? That the organisation doesn't use the training in order for it to learn first and make the first changes. You know, like lead the shift you're trying to create. And it, training's greatest potency may actually be as an intel gathering mechanism for what the organisation can do differently to release people and, and, and let them really actually, you know, shine. I'm not sure that people set out to do a bad job. I think that they're sometimes um, constrained and not, not in anyone's deliberate reason to do it. It's just happened over time. So, you know, that's probably my one of my biggest bugbears. And I'll, I'll let other people dive in on other things. That... Okay, so how do we fix these mistakes? Um, let's bring Bob in. So, so I, I want to one build on the two. Things. One is we don't give people time. First of all, training is the beginning of the process, not the end. Absolutely, people treat it as the end, which is ridiculous. The second is we don't give people time to to actually learn a new behavior. When you have to learn something, you have to give them time and space. And so we don't we don't actually free things up for them. We actually have them fit it in between things, and it doesn't work, right? The other is uh, brutal feedback. Like I don't think we have we have like when you're learning something new. Um, you, you need feedback. And what's happened is, is, is because of uh, the environment, we can't give brutal, honest feedback, right? And the last one is a place to practice. And so solutions that I've come up with, giving them learn, I, I expect the people who, who work with me, basically that they should, they should take 20% of their week, 20% of their week, and they should be learning and getting better. And, the, and to be honest, I want to know what everybody's done to make progress this week in learning the skills or whatever they have to do. And so to me, I make sure people have the space to do that. Not giving fee uh, uh, the strong feedback is, to be honest, um, I've been able to uh, find people who, so for example, college athletes um, here in the US, if I, if I hire college athletes, they're used to getting great feedback and want feedback. And so trying to actually be able to give people very constructive feedback to do something with it, as opposed to taking it personally, 
is 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 to be honest, it's it's a very important aspect. And then the last thing, a place to practice is, I actually ask people to say like, go find a volunteer organization where you can practice these new skills, because nobody wants to practice live. <laughs> they don't. They can't. Right. And so they're not going to do it hard enough. So to me, it's like learning how to actually come up with these solutions and realize that, again, training is the beginning, not the end. Um, so I'm going to build on that. And full disclosure, uh, I've recently taken on the role of CRO for a company called Mobile Practice, um, founded uh, by uh, my uh, good friend, Ben Eddy. And what Mobile Practice does is it creates um, the opportunity for uh, micro coaching and uh, these tiny interventions out of the spotlight where um, you coach what you see. So as a manager or a trainer or a coach, I can take a moment and I can say, Bob, um, I thought you did well at the opening of the conversation with uh, Tom. However, at this moment where you started talking about the company, you kind of hit a car crash. Um, so I now give you an intervention with clear steps and I can upload a video of the car crash. I can upload a best practice and I can give you evaluation criteria. And then you can practice at a time that's convenient to you. Now, what's really interesting about this is the reps or the employee, because it's not just restricted to sales uh, training. It can be management, uh, EQ, whatever, um, they typically will upload the video four or five times uh, before they finally save it. So they're becoming more self-aware. And I think part of training and coaching and learning is elevating the individual's level of self-awareness. Um, because if they see themselves on film, and it is a horror story, um, they're not going to put that up uh, for the coach to evaluate. So they raise their own level of awareness and that embeds um, the new behavior. Now, once you've uploaded it, the coach can then give direct feedback in whichever format, audio, video or written um, that that person learns best. Um, and until it, it's perfect, because I believe perfect practice makes perfect, um, then uh, you don't make that a best practice. But now you can create this asset library uh, a best practices for onboarding and as a playbook. And as a manager, um, you can use it as one of the three before me's. Um, so one of my rules whenever I'm working with managers is, or any uh, client, is try and fix your own problem in three ways before you come to me for help. So we eliminate learned helplessness and upward delegation that way. Um, and you can shadow coach as well, which is really clever. So you can work with um, the manager as the VP of sales and you can say, uh, Bob, I noticed how you were coaching Fred uh, on that intervention. I uh, thought you did a great job here, here and here. Here you're a little bit lacking in nurturing and you missed this uh, key point. Um, go back and do that again. So now you could, uh, as the trainer or as the leader, uh, you can address issues with two, three, four, five hundred people. Uh, without having to have the individual interventions. Um, so keep an eye out for a company called Mobile Practice um, because it addresses all of those issues that Bob just raised. Um, okay, um, so in terms of um, 
who needs to be on site to get training right? Um, so, Ken, let's bring you in on this. Wow. Um, you know, look, I think the sales leaders have to set the tone and what are the expectations of this course, the investment that we're making, um, if it is indeed the right uh, learning program for the organization. And um, I think, you know, I've seen some really great things out there. And you ask how we can fix this. Bring in the customer to talk in in the session. Um, listen to what their perspectives are. Listen to what they what they what went well for them in the best sales cycles and what was just a train wreck. Um, and I think the other thing too that is a huge chasm that we have to close is how salespeople work with their support teams. So their pre-sales, their deals desks, all of those things where they see those individuals as a transaction, not necessarily a full uh, a full team that's actually playing a team sport. Um, I think that's a critical miss that we've got to address. Um, it's not just the salesperson quarterbacking it. It is a it, it takes a village to get that sale done, and you have to be able to work with those people in a very effective way. Excellent. Okay. Um, but a bit of a Simon. Final words. In general or on the issue on who needs to be on side? Uh, on, uh, in general, because I think we need to wrap up. So I'm uh, doing a quick round robin from everyone. Yeah, okay. Um, I, what, for me, the issue is we live in a, we live in a digital world. Um, we're trying to, you know, everyone's trying to create digital uh, marketing funnels and sales funnels. We want to click people through selling. We want to click people through training. Uh, we want this on and off speed, and yet humans are still analog. And so there is this fundamental mismatch with the way we're delivering information and experiences and asking people to make decisions. And, I, I, I mean, I, I loved the comment about give people some time. People actually need a little bit of space to breathe. If we want to develop, if we want to develop salespeople, and forget the training and everything else. If we just want to develop salespeople who honour the who honour the profession of selling, we we actually we we need to be willing to challenge people to stop accepting superficial and get pretty deep in these kinds of conversations today. You know, take the time to actually think a bit deeper about some stuff. Sexy sells in the marketplace. There's no doubt. But profound will outsell sexy every day of the week. Oh. A deep thinker will outsell a superficial sexy sales conversation every single day of the week, but you need to allow the time for profound thinking. And, you know, if we can stop trying to just teach technique to salespeople and get them to think deeply about this profession they're in, and, and who are they going to be and how they're going to show up and then create the space for them to think that through and what does the customer mean to them and all the things that all, all the folks have talked about, that, that for me is the game that we should be in. You know, it's, it's your thing, Mark, about sales, a force for good, you know. We've got to challenge people to think a bit harder about but will it be willing to go out and challenge people to think a bit harder about this. So, selling, than, training. 
selling is absolutely a thinking profession. Um, there is no room for showing up and throwing up anymore. Um, I, I was interviewing Tony Hughes a couple of days ago, and um, he was working with a company that sells chemicals and compounds uh, to pharmacists and chemists. And um, they uh, had two territories in Australia that had no rep. And they were the highest performing territories in the country. Um, they interviewed uh, the pharmacists in that region and they said, well, what value do the reps provide? Well, they said, well, basically nothing. They just interrupt our day. Uh, oh, actually, no, you're, there is one thing. They give us discounts. Now, if that isn't a damning indictment of um, what's the dumbest thing about selling, um, then we've really got to start um, educating and really driving home learning. Um, Self-improvement must be a mandatory part of every salesperson's job description. Um, and managers have to be held to account for making sure that their salespeople are improving consistently. Um, Zach, final words. Uh, I just want to say briefly, somebody mentioned how, you know, the, the veteran salespeople very often are doing the right thing, but they don't quite know what they're doing. They can't articulate it. And then very often the new people, they're not quite sure what to do. And I think in terms of, of, of scalability, what we're trying to do here is to make sure we can take these skills that the old people are doing figure out a way to articulate that, quantify it, and, and transfer that to be able to the next generation because that's how we scale up. And the whole thing of the sales trading is to make things scalable. We can't depend on people who have spent 30 years figuring things out themselves and doing things great, but they don't know exactly what they're doing, right? So that's that's my two cents about sales trading. Thanks, Thank you. Uh, Ken, final words? I, I just really think that, um, you know, for this to work, I think I'm saying things that everybody else has said that you've got to give people time. It's a behavior change. Um, you've got to structure the programs to meet the needs of the organization. And you've got to do this in a, in a team, team sport way. Excellent. David. Yeah. I, I think the final thought here has to be, um, the vast majority of sales training is focused on what happens between the customer and the salesperson. Obviously, terribly important, not going to waste any time going into that. But the person in the organization who can have the biggest impact on the salesperson is the person that the salesperson reports to. And there's not nearly enough attention on that. I think everybody has mentioned something about that uh, over the course of the discussion today. But if there's one takeaway I think people really ought to spend some time thinking about is if you want to improve sales efficacy, if you want to improve visibility, if you want to improve customer experience, let's look at that relationship between the salesperson and the person they're reporting to and figure out how to use that as the driver of sales excellence in the organization. Couldn't agree more. Fred? Um, yeah, I mean, if you're involved in sales training, you know, as a commissioning it, I'd ask yourself a simple question. Um, would you invite your customers to the sales training? If your answer is no, because you haven't got any, well, okay, that's that answer. If it's no for another reason, start asking yourself why. 
because you've got some serious problems. That's a fabulous point. Tom? Tom? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Uh, I think the uh, last point I would make is we've, we've spent a lot of time in the last hour and a half talking about sales training from an organizational point of view. And I think one of the things we, we, we can't lose sight of is that um, salespeople have got to, got to make an investment in themselves. And they've got to start to they've got to start to improve their skill set, their behavioral change, um, and take ownership of getting better on a day to day basis. You know, through reading books, listening to blog, you know, reading blogs, uh, watching videos, YouTube videos, you know, training, whatever it happens to be, they've got to start to invest in themselves. And I think that's one of the biggest biggest downsides. And the second aspect of it is is that you know David uh, touched on it. Your manager is your best your best resource. If you're not getting good coaching from your 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 direct supervisor, guys, it's time to move on. It's time to look at you know for another job where you can get that type of, type of training and advancement. Because otherwise, you're going to be the same individual five years from now as you are today, and and at some point you're going to be unemployable. So I I think it's investing in yourself. Uh, you know, is another aspect that we ought to really uh, spend a great deal of time talking about. So the best till last, Bob. <coughs> um, you're doing an impression of Marcel Marceau. Ah, uh, there you go. So as as my one of my mentors, uh, Clay Christensen, would say, is the, the the teacher appears when the student's ready to learn, and and the fact that knowledge is actually a commodity at this point, and to be honest, I almost would say the process is a commodity. It's the experiences that we create that help them make progress that's most important and that we need to focus on how to actually help people make progress, how to help the salespeople make progress and what are those skills and behaviors they need and give them the space and time. I think the, the reality is, is like at some point because it's so commoditized, people are trying to compare apples and oranges and they're not seeing the experience difference between one and the other and the problem isn't actually well articulated. So if the, if the, if the supply, supply side can, the the salespeople who are buying the training can actually articulate their struggles better and we can actually articulate the outcome better. We will then be able to actually figure out how to craft the progress, uh, uh, the knowledge into a, into a experience that actually will change people's behavior. Excellent. And in Hilliard, let's bring you in uh, to wrap up. I know there were a couple of organizations that you want to uh, highlight and uh, your conclusions. Yeah, we'll be uh, covering those on a further. So um, to save time um, on a philosophy of KISS, keep it simple. I think there's five main points that uh, we've covered and need to be gone through in more detail. So um, first of all, to ensure the sales training clients needs are properly understood, that uh, sales training uh, understands the culture of the organization before they're going in. Um, thirdly, to engage and involve the management as a way of helping bringing that sales training and coaching into the culture of the organization. Fourthly, also to get more accountability in the results of sales training. And so you can uh, more in-depth sales training and coaching programs uh, to make that possible. So very simply, that's um, um, some of the things we'll be looking at in more detail during the IST events. The, the one thing I would take issue with there is the word accountability, which I think is a wishy-washy word. Um, and uh, very often, 
uh, people talk about accountability, but they don't define what it really means. Um, and that's problematic because um, we, we really have to be very clear. You know, what are you responsible for? Do you do what you say you will do? Are you reliable? Um, uh, are you effective? Number um, one, the, the self-training client's needs. So the accountability is results-based on the individual needs of the client. Okay. So um, I, I, th I think, again, as, as a broad topic, though, uh, and I think this might be a subject for another uh, entire panel discussion uh, around uh, accountability uh, throughout the, sale, the revenue operation, um, because um, sales does not exist on its own. Uh, marketing, sales, customer success, the account growth teams, management and leadership, and all the surrounding services uh, are all part of that process of delivering the outcome to the customer. Um, so um, what I would love is for people who've attended or who are listening to this uh, on recording is to give some ideas of other panel discussions that you would like us to uh, bring up. Um, and I promise we will try and have a more diverse team. We need some more ladies, uh, people of uh, different nationalities, different colors um, to uh, participate. Uh, I did invite several, but not every, um, they couldn't all make it. And that's my fault. Um, but uh, again, um, just thank you so much. This has been an incredibly insightful um, conversation and I've learned a lot. Um, I hope the audience has uh, found it useful. Um, if you could please uh, comment on the post uh, about Sales of Force for Good and use the hashtag uh, SAFFG, another one IAST for the International Association of Sales Trainers, and buyer safety as one word. Um, and then it'll start getting um, tagged and uh, hopefully we can promote these messages. Um, in the meantime, um, thank you so much, David Massover, Ian Hilliard, Bob Mester, Tom Williams, Simon Bowen, Zach Selch, <coughs> excuse me, Ken Pearson, Ian Moyes. And I know I've forgotten somebody, but um, thank you all. Absolutely fabulous conversation. So this is me, Marcus Kauke, signing off. Um, from Sales of Force for Good. And John Robinson, thank you for curating and keeping me updated. Take care, guys.